Bible reading today is from Psalm 19, um, be on the screen, or if you've got a Black Church Bible, page 885. For the director of music, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your, your servant is warmed. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you, Jono. If you could... Keep your Bibles open, and if you haven't got a Bible and you'd like one, there are some in the middle of the room here, and someone will just stick up your hand and someone will grab one or go and grab one for you. Uh, you'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. Your words are a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, and we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to see um, the preciousness of Scripture and you'd help us, our lives, to be transformed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today I want us to all imagine that this building is a time machine, all right? And now the building is starting to shake and rumble and lifting up a bit. And if there were windows that you could look out of, we'd see Rachel and Ryan as Mary and Joseph in the pageant last week, but we're going back in time. There's Chris and Belinda Edwards. It's 2001. They're starting the church. Um, we're going back quickly. There's soldiers from Aldgate leaving for the Second World War. Oh, now it's the First World War. We're speeding up. There's Charles Beaumont Howard. He's the first minister of Trinity, the colonial chaplain, and he's riding his horse, doing a pastoral visit up to the hills. He's waving. We're now we're taking off. The whole place is taking off, and we're now sailing over northern Australia, over the oceans. Down we look, and there are the tall ships um, heading off to the Spice Islands for trade. And now we've come over the continent. Now we're over Italy. We're slowing down. There's Michelangelo. He's on his scaffolding, giving us a wave. Hello, Michelangelo. It's cold because now we're going up over the Swiss-Italian Alps, um, and we're coming down now to rest in Germany. The year is 1521. We've arrived at the German town of Worms. We're looking out at dinner time, and even though it's dinner time, there are 2,000 German townsfolk from this small town flocking outside 
to see a young man arrive. He is the son of a miner, he is a German monk, and his name is Martin Luther. Luther had been summoned to appear before the Roman Emperor Charles V to answer for his heretical teachings and writings. Why? It was an issue of authority. Four years earlier, in 1517, Luther had nailed his colours to the mast, more particularly a paper to a castle door at Wittenberg, where he was a professor of New Testament. And on this bit of paper was lit, written 95 statements or theses where he protested against the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. The main one being the selling of papal indulgences, which were pieces of paper issued by the Pope, which guaranteed upon purchase to rescue the soul of your deceased relative from the flames of purgatory. Right. Luther knew this was wrong because Scripture clearly taught that salvation for sinners was found in Christ alone, not the Pope, received through faith alone, not through the purchase of indulgences, and entirely by God's grace alone, rather than through anything we have contributed ourselves. In Luther's theses and subsequent books, he issued a clear challenge to papal authority. Now, humanly, the challenge was presented as Luther versus the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. In reality, it wasn't a challenge between Luther and the Pope, but a challenge between the authority of Scripture and the Pope. Because by 1521, four years later, his teachings had spread. They could not be ignored by the Catholic Church. Luther was therefore summoned to appear before a diet, an assembly. Now, when you hear Luther and the diet of worms, it's not like, you know, Bear grills and something he'd eat on one of his... A diet was an assembly. Verms was the place, the, the town. Okay, so the diet of Verms. He was summoned to, not to discuss, but to give answer to his heretical writings. He was summoned before the emperor in a room that was so packed full of church authorities and delegates, there was standing room only for everyone except the emperor. And there Luther, under immense pressure, was asked to recant of his writings and to admit them heretical. What would he say? At issue was not just his physical life, because if he answered wrongly, his life was now forfeit, but the larger question of authority. Do the scriptures have supreme authority over the Pope, or do the Pope and church tradition have authority over the scriptures? Now, maybe that's not our debate today, but the question of authority is still with us. You see, how does God, how is God's voice ultimately heard today? Now, some will say the scriptures, but we have to ask if we say that, is that something we truly believe? Because, of course, it's one thing to say that God speaks to us in the scriptures. It's quite another thing to come to them, eager and expectant, to come to them often, to open them, hungry to hear God and expecting him to hear, instead of perhaps reading them with disinterest or doubt or suspicion or just not reading them at all. Do we really believe the scriptures have authority? Many today look to hear God's voice in our experience, you know, that feeling of settled calm that comes when we need to make a decision and we think this is God's will for us. Or maybe the filling of the soul that can come in moments of heartfelt praise, which is right and good and a work of the Spirit. But is this 
how we hear God's voice particularly. Others look to church tradition and reason, those who are putting the case against Luther saying, what makes you think you're right when there are centuries of teaching in church tradition that go against what you're saying? You know, when we open the Bibles, we may think we read in isolation, but we don't. We read with the Scriptures in fellowship with those who've gone before us and indeed those who are alive with us, maybe in our lounge rooms, uh, doing home group with us. So maybe you look to church tradition and reason to hear God's voice. You see, how is God's voice heard today, now? Well, Psalm 19 tells us there are two ways, and the Pope isn't one of them. The first, in verses 1 to 6, is God's general revelation of himself to all the world through creation. And then the second, in verses 7 to 11, is God's specific, special revelation of himself through his written word. Two ways. The first is through creation, specifically through the heavens. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The sun, the moon, and the stars are a symphony which declare that God is there. He is real. He is a creator. And that who he is as creator is glorious. You know, we stand, we watch a sunset. Here's a photo I took of one at Glenelg. And we know the sunset shouts it out because it is glorious, the one who made it must be incredibly glorious. We stand out and we see the night sky. This is the South Australian sky, the McNaught Comet, which could be viewed um, not too long ago. Its tail streaming across the sky. It's amazing. Well, how mighty is the one that sent that comet spinning through the space? We head north and we see the Milky Way, 300 billion stars, 100,000 light years across. You wonder whether the stars that you see on a particular night really still exist. Or did they, you know, just vanish into existence 50,000 years ago? But you don't know that it's taken so long for the light to get to you. The, the, the distances are so vast. How glorious is the creator of such a magnificent uh, galaxy? How can you not look at the heavens and know that God is there and that he is mighty and that he is glorious? Those things are shouted out every time we see a sunset. Every time we marvel at the sky, God's glory is proclaimed. And we note from verse 2 that God's voice throughout the creation is unceasing. It does not stop. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. So no matter where people are born, in what country, what continent, no matter when they are born, in what age, what century, every single person has heard this voice of God. Verse 3 there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words into the ends of the world. The scope of the revelation, you see, is universal. God's voice through the creation has been heard by everyone, even by the blind. I cannot see the heavens, but they feel the sun's heat. And the sun is the crowning glory of the heavenly work in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. What all this means, of course, is that there is no one in the world who is totally ignorant of God. Even our indigenous people here in Australia, 1,000 years ago, 
the people in Mongolia who've never heard the name of Jesus, every person knows something of God. They won't know his name. They won't know the name of his son. But they will know that there is an awesome and glorious creator who deserves our praise. So this is God's first way of speaking, his general revelation of himself to all people through his creation. The second way in which God speaks to us is much more specific. It is God's special revelation of himself through his written word. And this is essential because without it, we wouldn't know anything more about God than just generalities about him. And in the description of God's special revelation of himself through his word, David reminds us that God's written word actually is all we need. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, the Torah, the scriptures, is perfect, which means complete. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts, the decisions the Lord makes are right. The ordinances, the, the things he proclaims, are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. In other words, it's saying, it's all you need. Scripture is sufficient. Now, why? Because God's word has power. The scriptures are not divorced from the spirit of God. The spirit inspired the scriptures. The spirit of God keeps speaking to us through the scriptures and driving his word home. And the word of God has power. It feeds our souls. More than that, the statutes of the, of the Lord make simple people wise. This is not about intelligence. Intelligence isn't wisdom. Intelligence may simply mean that people are smarter in being selfish. Wisdom is different. Wisdom means fearing the Lord and knowing the right way to live in God's world. And the scriptures, even for someone who's simple and lacks intelligence, the scriptures make a simple person wise. They equip them. And more than that, the effect on, the, on us is real. It's redemptive. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, what does it do? It revives the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You know this, don't you? You know if you've been skimping on your Bible reading, something's not quite right. It's not long before your life begins to go askew. Your judgments fall out of kilter. Um, you begin to treat people badly. But then you come to the word of God with a hungry heart and open and you're repentant and suddenly God restores your soul. Suddenly you know how to live in the world. Suddenly you and God are right again. It redeems us. It's helpful. It's a redemptive word. It gives us life. It revives us from lifelessness to being able to be alive and to function in God's world as he intended. So there are two ways in which God speaks. God's general revelation of himself into all the world. God's specific revelation of himself through his spoken word. Now, what's the difference between these two? Why do you need the second if you've got the first? The Reformation slogan, Scripture alone, was a rallying cry against the Pope as God's agent of revelation. God speaks through his words, not through papal bulls or pronouncements. What the slogan meant was that Scripture alone carries the authority of God. No priest, no preacher, no Man or woman is equal to it or above it. And that's why when we listen to the scriptures explained, as you are doing now, we have to test what is said against the scriptures, 
I'm not infallible. I need you to read with the Bibles open, with brains engaged, so that if I say something that's wrong, you point it out to me and serve me and love me. And that's been done before, and I've been grateful for it. All right? None of us are above the Scriptures. But because Scripture is how God speaks, it's everything, and it's everything we need for life and salvation, what this means is that we don't need to go looking to hear God's voice elsewhere because the Scriptures is all we need. We don't need visions or experiences or still small voices or church councils or synods. But the thing is, we do go looking for these things, don't we? Maybe not synod. That's like bamboo under my fingernails, but everything else. <laughs> you know, that thirst for experiencing God directly apart from his word? Now, of course, the desire to experience God is right. Actually, it's in the Psalms. Um, Paul experienced God. Uh, Jesus, uh, as a man, you know, God incarnate, but he went away on the mountainside to pray, to have fellowship with his heavenly Father. Experiencing God is right, and it's part of our loving of God, but not at the expense of the Bible. You don't do it apart from the Bible. And yet, when you think about that, that is the normal practice in most of Adelaide's churches. Did you know that? They rarely open the Bible, or if they do, only a tiny bit, to proof text whatever they want to say. That's a disaster. That's an absolute disaster. And then, of course, the world we li we've lived in has changed from that of Martin Luther. Today, in our world, experience determines truth. Uh, we know people from other faiths. They have their experience, which, experiences which are true for them. That translates into us thinking there is no absolute truth. There's just experience. So to the person who closes the Bible and likes to access their spirituality through creation, well, we think, who am I? to enforce what I believe on them. And then our confidence in the Bible's sufficiency and the Bible's authority gets knocked again. What's at stake? You see, if there is no difference between God's general revelation of himself in creation and God's specific revelation of himself in scriptures, there's no difference. Nothing's at stake. If all we need to know about God to make our lives meaningful to have an authentic spirituality which puts us in relationship with God and guides us in life, if all that we need is found in creation, then we don't need... Where's the Bible? Thank you. We don't need this, do we? Sorry, you have it back because you need it. All right. <laughs> God's general revelation of himself in creation would be sufficient. There would be no need for God's special extra revelation. But come back to the psalm. The psalm says there's a difference for whilst the heavens declare the glory of God, what is it that revives the soul and gives light to the eyes in the psalm? It's God's word, isn't it? It's not the creation. You know, there's a difference. I stand at a sunset with my parents, who are not Christians, and I'm bringing over, brimming over with praise to God, but they just say, oh, isn't that beautiful? And they walk away. There's a difference. What's happening? A hint is given when you compare verse 1 and verse 7. Have a look. In verse 1, God is mentioned by a very general word for God in the Old Testament, which we translate God. Right? Then in verse 7, you'll notice that God is referred to differently by his personal name, translated there as Lord. It's Yahweh. The point is that within the psalm, when God's general revelation of himself is described, 
God's revealed in only the most general of terms. But how we come to know God personally is not through creation, because how would you know the name of God unless he tells you, unless he reveals it to you? The way you come to know God personally in relationship with him is through his special revelation of himself, where he reveals himself, you see, makes known to us what isn't known elsewhere. Now, in the Bible, God tells us that the only way in which people come to know him in this special saving way is either through his word or someone sharing the word with someone else. It seems to me, and we must walk very humbly here, that there is no other way. So there's an obvious question at this point. Can someone without any knowledge of Jesus Christ be saved? Historically, Christians have adopted three positions in answer to that question. There is an exclusivist view. This is the traditional evangelical view that salvation is found only in the name of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's a pluralist view which says many roads lead to God and Jesus Christ is the only one. Thirdly, there's an inclusivist view which says in some way Christ is effective in other religions although he is hidden. So sincere Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, whatever, will find themselves in heaven because of Christ, although that, that will be a surprise to them. This is the official Roman Catholic position, that people in other religions can be anonymous Christians. Now, on this issue, we need to walk very humbly, which means we actually have to listen to the scriptures, okay, because they're over us. And I'd like to show you how Paul tackles the issue in the book of Romans where he picks up on this passage in Psalm 19. So if you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, please turn to that in your Bibles. Romans 1, 16, and I want you to see this. So if you haven't got a Bible, please get one at this point. We're going to be going through Romans a bit, so you'll need to have a Bible open. Romans 1, 16. Paul states his position when he says... The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God's special revelation, right? We think, but what of God's general revelation? Well, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul mentions this when he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in other words, all people are privy to what, have, what God's revealed of himself through the creation, namely that he is there and that he's powerful. So no one in the world can say, I know nothing about God. And that agrees with Psalm 19, right? But here we see that God's general revelation of himself now becomes a means against which people will be judged on the day of judgment. So that if it, even if someone hasn't heard of the name of Jesus, God will hold them to account with what they do, with what they know, and they all know something of God, and he'll judge us accordingly. So the question then becomes, well, what do people do with this general knowledge of God's existence and his power? And then in the rest of Romans 1, I haven't got time to go through it in detail, but you see the universal human response to that general revelation of God through creation, is to reject it and to turn aside to idols. So that although the heavens declare the glory of God, human religion is full of examples of those who bow down to the heavens 
to the sun, the moon, the stars. They worship the creation rather than the creator. Paul says this is true around the world. In their hearts, people reject God and worship the creation. That sounds like a pretty good description of Australians, don't you think? Reject God and worship the creation? We think, what about the so-called noble savage? What about the sincere Hindu who's never heard of the name of Jesus? The decent people out there who are just ignorant. Well, in chapter 2, Paul mentions two other means by which people who have not heard the gospel will be judged. The first is their conscience, verse 15 speaks of the requirements of the law being written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges men's secrets through Jesus Christ. So we have God's general revelation of himself through creation as a criteria for judgment. Then you have God's... Sorry, you have people's consciences, which will alternatively accuse or defend them on the day of judgment... And then thirdly, you have, and finally, you have people's own moral standards. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul uses stark language when he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Why? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. He says, We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you... A mere human pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's very stark language. It leaves people without excuse. What's he saying? I want you to imagine that the person without the Bible walks through life with a thought recorder so that throughout their life, every moral judgment that they have made of other people is recorded. He's saying on the day of judgment, it will be played back. And by each person's own judgments that they have made of others, by their standards, when their own lives are assessed by those standards they've made of others, people will fail. They will be without excuse. So against the criteria of God's general revelation of himself and then our consciences, then our moral judgments, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 9, we are all alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He says that judgment will come so that every mouth will be silenced. You know, the loud mouth which castigates God. The mouth of Richard Dawkins. Silenced before God on the day of judgment. The whole world held accountable to God. And he wraps up the whole argument by saying, we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and the situation is utterly hopeless except and here is the beautiful beautiful news except for the gospel by which Paul says this is God's power to save now moving ahead in chapter 10 we've moved over a whole lot Paul returns to the person without the Bible 
And he goes back to God's promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's firm promise in Scripture. But then he asks in the next verse, verse 14, But how then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? Well, they can't. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Well, they can't. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Well, they can't. How can they preach unless they're sent, as it is written, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of people who bring good news, the gospel? So that, you see, if no one goes with the gospel, people cannot hear. And if someone does call on the name of the Lord, God's method for their salvation will be to send someone with the news. And that, it seems to me, in the logic of Romans, is God's method. It looks to me according to the Pauline argument that the person without the Bible, even though they have creation, conscience, their own moral judgments, they cannot be saved. They need to hear the good news. Now, I might be wrong, but I've read Romans fairly carefully, and I'm happy to be corrected. But if that's the argument, then we need to hold it. And we think, is that unfair? No, because God has not been silent. Verse 19 of chapter 10, Paul quotes Psalm 19. The voice of the heavens has gone out into all the earth. And yet God's promise is that if someone calls out to him, he will send another person to them with the gospel because it's God's specific revelation of himself in the gospel, which is his power for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, draw a breath. What's your reaction to all of this? If we believe in scripture, we have to take that message seriously. And after we get over the initial shock of it, we realise that the Bible is God's gift to us. It is God's grace to us that he has actually spoken to us in the scriptures. The God whom we naturally turn away from, this God has spoken. He's revealed himself to us by name. And he restores us and he gives us life through what he speaks. So no wonder in Psalm 19, the overwhelming note of God speaking is that of joy. Yes, of course, it's a breathtaking wonder that God reveals himself through the heavens. But that God reveals himself through his word. You know, that is what revives the soul. That brings joy to the heart. That brings light to the eyes. The scriptures are themselves God's grace to us. The scriptures are life. Why? Because they deal with the darkness within. Verse 11. You see, by your servant, by them your servant is warned in Psalm 19. In keeping of them there is great reward. Who can discern his hidden errors? Who can discern his faults? Ah, the scriptures crack them open, don't they? They reveal something about God and about us to ourselves. At the end of the psalm, we see the impact of God's speech upon us. The effect of God's word is to expose our sin, our deep sin, even our unconscious sin, and therefore our need to God, for God. And then it tells us specifically about God and reveals God to us, to sinful exposed people personally, by name, as Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? The Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Scripture is the word of life because it reveals 
God personally as saviour. But only scripture does that. You can't get that knowledge any other way. That was Luther's conviction, which he came to by reading the scriptures. And so when the question was put to him, will you recant of your teachings and writings? He knew what was at stake. It was, what, what was at stake was whether people would look to, to hear God speak through the Pope or through experience or church tradition or in Scripture alone, which is where God's authority lies. And because life and salvation is found in God's written word, Luther knew that at stake was more than just his life, but people's eternal lives, depending on where they trusted to hear God speak to them. And so under great pressure at that moment, he said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason because I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Now that courageous stand changed history. That is why we sit here today with a Bible open in our language, which we can read. That is how we know God. Scripture alone. Friends, I want to ask, do you therefore have a high view of Scripture? Well, the test will be, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, do we open it and do we read it? We can say we have a high view, but do we come to it like these words actually are life for me, that I do not live on bread alone, I live by the word that comes from the mouth of God. The test is whether you read it to your children, whether husbands and wives, you read it together, whether in your home groups you open the Bible and you read it with one another. Do you? Let me say there's blessing. There is blessing if you do. If you're simple, the Bible will make you wise. If your soul's dying, the Bible will revive it. If your eyes are glazed over, you know, the scripture will give your eyes light. If you're defeated in your heart, it will give your heart joy. It is sweeter than honeycomb. In keeping of what it says, there is great reward. Only the scriptures which reveal the gospel of God's grace and God's glory. We need, therefore, to be a church of the book, a people of the Bible, who look to the Bible, who love it, who open it, who prioritise opening it and reading it and discussing it by ourselves and in our homes and in our home groups and reading it and teaching it whenever we meet to each other. This is God speaking to us. The scriptures are God's life to us. It is God's gift to us. And we must treasure it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, set our hearts on fire for your word. Please revive our souls. Please speak to us through it. Bring light to our eyes. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen.